In this Dairy Banter podcast, journalist Anne Lee talks to Rabobank dairy analyst Emma Higgins. They drill down into the detail of the recent report looking at dairy land values over the next five years. The report is called Afloat But Drifting Backwards. Hi Emma, we just kind of walk through the report a little bit I guess and, and talk about what is in there, some of those uh, headwinds and tailwinds that you're talking about. First of all, we want to to look at uh, the capital gain story and that uh, debt-driven expansion. I, I guess that's been pretty well understood, but can you give us a quick pricey of what of the aspects of that that you've explained in the report? Yeah, sure, Anne. So, look, um, I think the capital gain story and also the debt-driven expansion is actually well understood, but it is an important time to reiterate how that's played into how land values have trended over time. And so in this report, we've broken it into, or land values, into three distinct periods. So we talk about first up the boom years. So that's from the year 2000 up until 2008, followed by the global financial crisis correction. So that's 2008, 2009. And then the third period is from 2010 until now. So this is where we call it land prices being afloat, but moving sideways. And the capital gains piece really falls into that first period up until 2008 where we saw rising farm gate milk prices, generally speaking, across New Zealand farmers. Um, and by comparison, returns for other sectors were much lower, so for, deer, for, for beef, for example, and, and also for sheep meat. So we saw rising farm gate milk prices, which led to um, farmers seeking to reinvest their profits and expanding their own businesses and also investing into the cooperative model. And at the same time, there was readily available capital. So um, this really underpinned the dairy land value boom. So farmers had a lot of access to debt for development and expansion. And it was also a very competitive banking landscape at the time. So the combination of this... um, in addition to really high-risk appetites by both financiers and also farmers, led to farmers borrowing more against increased land values, and that fueled that whole lending cycle again and again. So as, for example, the land values rose further, then farmers had the ability to really borrow more against this increasing equity base, and, and on it went. And so the important part of this whole piece really, is while it is very well known and understood, the important point is that this period really created a strong mentality of farming for capital gain and um, certainly focused on profiting through capital gain as opposed to operational returns um, and really developed that sense that land values would would keep rising. So that's really the combination of the capital gain story as well as the depth of an expansion in a a high-level summary. Yeah, and, and as you say, there was a kind of a, a high-risk appetite from everybody involved, um, banks included. Absolutely, yeah. So mm. it, it wasn't just the farmers who were looking at very ambitious year-on-year production growth budgets, um, but, but also bankers were certainly um, very competitive across that time. Um, and so both parties really demonstrated that high-risk appetite and, um, yeah, really fueled that whole lending cycle. 
Mm. Obviously, then we hit uh, the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009 kind of era. What did we see then? Yeah, so basically land values took a bit of a dive across that whole period. So naturally, we saw commodity markets respond and therefore the milk price took a hit. Um, but importantly, the capital dried up as well as confidence falling. So as a result, we saw um, the dairy land markets um, start to become illiquid over that period in terms of sales. And as a result, as liquidity dried up, um, we saw really that the land values also soften over that period of time. But it was, you know, it was generally speaking um, short-lived and, you know, Post the GFC period, land values have remained afloat, but we've called it moving sideways because they've really only shown modest advancements over the last nine or ten years since then. Yeah, so the capital gains paradigm is uh, long gone, and we have, but have we seen a shift really in how uh, land values are set based on the operating return? Or what other things have been impacting on that land value story? Yeah, so you're right. So the capital piece has dried up, and we can actually measure that as well based on dairy and data. So there are a number of drivers that have also played into, um, if we start off with that, so, you know, over the last nine or ten years, um, we have seen a number of things happen, and some of them are quite recent in terms of, for example, tighter rules around foreign investment. And so that's removed another avenue of capital. And we've seen the greatest impact of that around the large-scale farms, um, particularly in the South Island. In addition to that, more recently, again, we've seen, obviously, the Reserve Bank announced in December last year around um, capital uh, banks requiring or being required to hold more capital over the next seven years. And so again, that's weighing down on sentiment, at least, for dairy farmers, um, as well as changing the banking landscape over the next few years to come. But the other intangible part that's really hard to measure comes down to, to sentiment and to confidence, dairy farmer confidence. That's something that we try and measure every quarter. And what we've noticed over the last couple of years is that um, the number of New Zealand dairy farmers expecting the agricultural economy to worsen over the next 12 months. Um, there are more farmers now expecting that to happen and what we're seeing is that the reasons being attributed to changing government or government policy and intervention. So there's a whole um, mix or medley of other factors at play and that's certainly been the case over the last 8 or 9 or 10 years. Um, and so when it comes to measuring the capital returns piece, how that's impacted, we're starting to see that come through in the data already. And that's one of the two methods that we've used to assess land value over time. Um, is yeah. I see in the report there that you've got two kind of methods of assessing that value. Um, so can you tell us what they are uh, to start with and then what they, what they found? Yeah, so um, I guess to begin with, the important point is that assessing land values is inherently subjective. So it is very dependent on obviously the individual investor, 
on a returns basis, on a risk appetite basis and other non-financial benefits that owning dairy land has. So we've tried to, to break it down into two methods of, of assessing this. The first is the ratio approach. So it's looking at land prices over time relative to the income derived from dairying. And what we're doing is we're taking that change in land price per hectare and we're dividing that by the kilograms produced per effective hectare and then dividing that over the average milk price per kilogram of milk solid. So, I mean, it's a complex way of coming up with an, an annual ratio, but the point being the lower the annual ratio is, the better the value of the land would appear. There's a whole lot of limitations around this this method, and I have talked about some of them um, in the report. And the, the first is obviously the data availability. So we're only as good as our data. And um, in this instance, I've based it on Dairy NZ work, and that was only available up until about 2017-18. But also, the metrics themselves provide a limitation um, in terms of the milk price and also productivity. They're both subject to annual movement, and in particular, the milk price is, is very vulnerable to obviously commodity markets. So we've tried to flatten out some of that volatility by showing a three-year average, which hopefully helps the longer-term investor think about things. Um, but it is certainly just one way of looking at it. And the second, the second way is comparing returns over time. So this is probably one that's a bit more regularly used. And it's just comparing cash returns um, over a, a period of time versus capital returns. And what we can see there is that Capital returns have been, uh, sorry, cash returns have been fairly modest, generally speaking, um, over the last 10 years. Um, but in particular, whether you're looking at the last 10-year period or the last 20-year period, these, relatively speaking, modest returns have been sweetened by capital um, returns, improved capital returns. So capital returns have been more volatile over time, but they have been higher than cash returns. Um, particularly in the last 20-year period. But over the last 10-year period, what we've seen is really flat capital returns. Mm. And um, a lot of that drive really gone out, as you alluded to before, around the capital growth in New Zealand land markets. Yeah. I, I notice in, that, um, in the report, when you look at the graphic that you're showing, the ratio there, it is uh, below the average currently. Um, so you'd have to say, you know, I don't know, is, what does that tell us? Does it tell us that it's undervalued? Does it tell us that it's um, just compared to the average, it's at a lower point? It's certainly not at its lowest. Uh, that was around 2014, but um, since 2000. But, you know, is it fair to say that it is overvalued then based on that ratio? Well, that's a good point that you make. So, as you say, using the ratio approach on face value, it does look as though um, investing in dairy land is less attractive than, say, the period between 2000 and 2008, but it is still attractive based on the 20-year average. Um, but then if you look at it from an operating returns and capital gains perspective, that would suggest using a different measure that perhaps it isn't as attractive as what it once has been. So it depends on who the investor is, I guess, and, and which um, which way of valuing land they wish to use um, and all the other benefits around it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, 
because the other thing is, um, I guess, it, it, the softening of that market makes it more realistic, given it's possible to make it is possible to make a good return at current product prices. I guess you know there's a lot of negativity around, but the reality is the payout at the moment is good. We do see farmers who can make strong cash returns in the current environment, and it's more a matter of maybe a systems approach or um, that it is something that farmers have more control over than what perhaps the report would suggest. Yeah, so that brings up a couple of, of really good points. So the first is that, um, as you suggest, cash returns at this point in time, if we're talking about it as at today, are really good for, for some operators. And as I alluded to before, I've used DRNZ data, which the most available point at that point in time of writing was 2017-18. So obviously since then, you know, and if we look at what today's market looks like, you know, we could be looking at a $7 plus milk price for the 19-20 season. So you're absolutely right on a cash returns basis um, or on a yield basis. Things are looking quite good for dairy farmers. But then moving on to a second point around, you know, we do anticipate the average farm gate milk price over the next five years to be around 6.25. So that number has come about via looking at the global supply demand markets by trying to work out where supply is coming from over the next five years and what the demand profile looks like and also factoring in I guess the the top end of the market um, in terms of where buyers are comfortable or, or the level or the price in which buyers are comfortable paying for dairy product and also the floor of the market as well. And so 625 has worked out um, looking at those models and also taking into account um, currency too. So we've landed on that. 625 historically is actually still a fairly good number. It is obviously above the 10-year average slightly, but it is below the milk price that we're seeing, you know, certainly looking at this year's forecast and then last season as well, 18, 19, 6.35. Mm-hmm. We're looking at Fonterra's number. So it's about perspective, I guess, and um, from a wider commodity sense, we do still think that prices are at or nearing the peak of the current cycle and remembering that we've seen actually really strong milk prices over the last um, four seasons now. or This will be the fourth season. So it's about putting that into context. So 6.25, yes, it is it's still relatively good, but it's not as good as what we've seen in the last couple of seasons. And so that's the important point for that second question around operational compliance costs. You're right, it comes down to individual farmers and managing what they can control and looking at obviously maintaining that margin over the next five years and some will absolutely be able to do it. But for some farmers who perhaps are not um, as ahead of the game around making some of those changes on farms that will need to transpire over the next five years or more to the point, the rules and regulations haven't even been set in their particular catchments yet. There will be additional costs to come on farm and so it's about managing that as best as they can in order to maintain that margin over the next five years. Yeah and I guess some of those costs are likely to be um, 
some people there will be capital costs as well and it's whether what kind of appetite there is out there for um, bankers uh, committing to that as well. Yeah. yeah, sure. And so what we're seeing is, is I like to call it, um, you know, a, a real change in banking landscape. And, you know, anecdotally we are hearing of banking tightening their approach to issuing credit. Um, and so to that early point, as I understand it, lending decisions are now increasingly being based on really strong cash flow performance and also that ability to repay both principal and interest sums and this is across all lenders. I'm generally speaking about the banking industry. Mm. So again, managing that margin is going to be crucial over the next five years for the new banking era that we're moving into. Okay. So let's have a look at some of those um, headwinds that you were talking about um, in the report as to kind of sort of assess what likelihood these things are going to, to occur and the, uh, I guess, have you been overly pessimistic or, or less than optimistic about any of them or whether they, these are, are actually really uh, more than likely to happen? Um, obviously, we've just talked about the Farmgate milk price. That is one of them. Mm-hmm. Profitability, um, you've also talked about a little bit with that uh, increasing regu- regulatory uh, compliance to lifting um, fixed working costs. Um, that confidence level as well that you're talking about um, mm. and I guess this is one of the big things is that uncertainty that people have and that's what they're living with because you know in reality mm. farmers are sitting here with um, you know lowest interest rates um, and um, you know good, good returns yet there is this level of confidence is low. Yeah that's right and that is really striking because generally speaking we haven't seen such strong farm gate returns whether it's the dairy, whether it's the sheep and beef, um, you know, at this level for an extended period of time while confidence has also been so low. So um, what's really clear is obviously it's an election year yeah. and so I think um, we're going to see wild swings in confidence um, depending on on obviously what the policies are that different parties will campaign around um, and then obviously what transpires with the election as well. So my base case scenario is that we are expecting to see low confidence um, for at least the next 12 months, if not 18 months, depending on which government gets into power. Mm, yeah, okay. The, the other uh, elephant in the room obviously too is the deep positions that farmers are already in. Um, and we hear a lot that it's a smaller number uh, with the higher levels of debt that drag that average up. So there are farmers around that are um, sitting in an okay kind of situation. Um, what can you tell us about what you're expecting there? Yeah, so and you're absolutely right. Um, it does vary on an individual basis. And I've just looked at some average numbers here purely because... Um, I think it's better to look at uh, what nationwide dairy farmers are doing on an average basis rather than perhaps drilling down into a certain region or or area. But, you know, we have seen the average debt for dairy farmers move lower um, up until the 31st of May 2019. Um, so the average debt number has dropped 
to $22 per kilogram of milk solids, and that's you know, a 50% improvement on where they were the prior year. But the important point there is that we've also seen milk production lift similarly. So my take on that is the reduction on debt is mostly flattered by increasing milk production. Mm. Um, now, you make a really good point. You know, Not all dairy farming businesses are the same, and not all of them are... Um, as exposed to higher high or larger debt um, than others, but the point here is that you know we are seeing a change in banking landscape, and those tighter credit metrics will certainly remain a headwind for um, obviously the ease of dairy land purchase um, for the foreseeable future compared to what we've seen in other periods of time that was looked at. Um, in this report, and, and namely I'm talking about 2000 to 2008. Right, and I guess in that respect that's where you see those um, issues of like where is the capital going to come from to uh, help uh, fund any uh, land purchases etc. Um, that is an issue, and, and also with those larger farms, um, larger enterprises, the lack of um, foreign investment that's not going to change or you don't expect to yeah. see that changing in the, next, in the near term. Yeah, that's our base case as well, is that we don't see um, any real change around the foreign investment policy, although, <laughs> again, it is election year and I see it has started to be tabled already. So um, we just had to come out and, and make a call on that one and mm. our base case scenario around this and our assumption is that there won't be a relaxation of the OAO directive um, anytime mm. soon. If that was to change, do you think it could be a game changer? You know, would it change your views? Well, it would certainly provide a new avenue or more liquidity for those larger scales, for sure. Um, a larger scale farms or the high value farms, where we're talking about, you know, fifteen million dollars, twenty million dollars, um, that kind of farm sale range, I think, mm -hmm. would probably benefit most. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other things that you you talked about that could have a little bit of an upside, so there were a few of those, which is nice to hear. <laughs> there's, a few, there's a couple of positives in there. Um, that the fact there is no new dairy land coming on yeah. stream, so you know you've got a tighter supply demand kind of issue there. Yeah, absolutely, and particularly once we've worked through these environmental regulations at a regional level or catchment level. There's so much uncertainty around that, as we've already talked about at length, but I do think once, you know, in five years' time, when we're looking backwards at some of the changes that will we'll gather pace across the next couple of years, I think we'll find that um, fully compliant dairy farms in very suitable areas will probably trade at a premium. So for sure, that's, that's one of the positives that we've drawn out. Obviously, there's still some other risks, you know, in terms of um, you know what we're seeing at the moment with coronavirus, Chinese pulling out of uh, markets, the effects that things like that could have on milk price. So any kind of anything that could affect um, milk price is obviously going to. Although we, I mean, we see that all the time. We see ups and downs. It is a volatile. Yep. It's, there's nothing's changed about that. Um, yep. And you know, we had volatile milk prices back when things were really um, surging ahead as well. So. Um, yeah. And and now I guess too one of the positive things I have to say is that farmers can if they are in a, a tricky situation they can um, you know manage some of that milk price risk whereas they didn't have those tools before 
um, absolutely, yeah. There's, you know, there's now at least a couple of avenues for farmers to look to manage on the income side, at least, and smooth out some of that volatility, which is, as you suggest, a much better position than say ten years ago. Yep. Yeah, yeah. In the report, you do break down. You get into quite a bit of detail about um, what could be happening with um, particular areas. And yeah. I just want to can you talk a little bit about that? And like, where do you? Uh, let's talk. Start, I guess, by just talking through some of those regions, anyway. But you know, there are a few questions about some of the assumptions you've made. So what I did was I tried to look at the main dairying regions across New Zealand, and so I picked out obviously Canterbury, Waikato, Taranaki, and Southland. And what we did there was we pulled riverbank data based on sales that have transacted since 2013 on a seasonal basis, um, plus in addition to riverbank data um, was also what we knew and heard about operating in the, the general dairy land market. So it is very skewed towards obviously riverbank knowledge, um, but it's our own data sets and we've gone with that as opposed to using something more on a nationwide basis like the REINZ. And so from that, we've drawn some conclusions around how, um, for example, the five-year median regional land price is tabled. We've broken it down per region into um, low, medium and high productive farms, productive capacity farms. Um, and again, that varies on the region. So it is, I mean, it is a little bit more detailed and um, it's probably easier to get a visual by looking at the report as to how some of these have trended. But what I tried to do was draw out just one theme or issue for each of the four regions. And, and you're right, there are some assumptions that I've made there and they certainly are just one person's opinion. And as I said earlier, you know, land is very subjective and, and people farming in certain areas will have a different view compared to what I do. But I do see, if we take Canterbury for example, regulation being a downward pressure to land prices over the next five years, particularly in regards to obviously the, the offshore investment office and any changes there, which we've, we've already talked about. I have also made a call um, in conjunction with my colleagues around, you know, the quantifying the, defi uh, the, the drop in land values that we may expect to see over the next coming years. So I have made some, some massive assumptions there. Um, but again, this is an opinion piece. It's designed to spark conversation and I'm encouraging people to have a chat about it, whether or not they agree or not. Um, and maybe some of the factors that may apply to their businesses and how they can start to manage for the next five years. I guess it's not necessarily the, what you say, it's not a fait accompli. This is not uh, necessarily, there are things that can be done to manage through this. Um, we, I don't see anybody jumping up and down and saying, look, we're not going to see some softening. The degree to which we see that probably is up for debate. Um, you talk about 10 to 20 percent over the coming five years in in Canterbury in terms of a reduction in land prices. This is the uncertainty that we're dealing with right now because there's still so much uncertainty, even with the known variables. So, 
for example, Plan Change 7, there's still a little bit of uncertainty around implementation of, of how that may apply. Um, and that's not even going into, for example, the essential fresh water proposals. It's really hard to already quantify some of the potential costs. So it is certainly hard to then quantify how they may apply over the next five years. So again, we've just used our best guess or um, an educated guess around what we may see. But obviously, yeah, others will be able to manage it much better than what I've what I've suggested. Others may find themselves exactly in that category, and so this document is designed to at least raise a flag and get and get people talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because I see in the report you kind of give out a five-year median regional land price based on what you the sales that you had available to you. And for instance, in Canterbury, those high, um, uh, what you call high, I don't know, uh, productivity farms. Um, yeah. and, and again, this is a little bit subjective because I guess it's based on that valuation based on um, kilos of milk solids that it's capable of um, producing. That doesn't tell us anything about the actual profitability of the farm, of course. Um, yep. But that, in, for instance, in Canterbury, that that's still sitting at 0.5% in the positive. So we haven't seen a decline in that yet, whereas the lower uh, quality farms, I guess you would say, but again, subjective because it's based on production um, and on a, on a per hectare basis anyway, and that yep. is... Um, that's dropped five percent. Um, yes, yes. So we can see and that in that aspect. So that's something that I didn't flesh out particularly in the report, but you're absolutely right. So those, so I, you know, the high productive capacity farms haven't dropped like what we've been talking about as being one of the challenges around capital. But what has changed is the sales. So the number of sales volumes has dropped, and so there have been a couple of sales that have helped, obviously, with looking at those numbers and those numbers being in the positive, but the total transactions themselves have, have dropped compared to what we've seen you know, a couple of years ago. Similarly, on the low productive capacity farms, we've seen an increase in sales at that lower end based again on, on um, availability of buyers in the market um, and slightly easier to get into versus larger scale farms and so we've seen more of those sales transact but obviously that's had an impact in terms of um, the five year median land price as well so these are the smaller details that I couldn't mm. quite squeeze into what's already a 15 page report <laughs> yeah and, and I mean when we look sort of quickly across those other regions south and again it's mostly driven by um, expectation of environmental regulation mm -hmm. changes and you expect to see those properties that are at the lower uh, productive end, you know, more of those decommissioned back to dairy support and even yeah. sheep and beef farming. And I guess that leads me to the Waikato a little bit in that what you talk about there is that one of the things that's holding those land values up there, you suggest, is the alternative land uses. And, um, you know, from... Um, things like uh, beef, poultry, cropping, finishing, even goats, um, yep. and of course horticulture, which is also seen. Mm. A, so we've got a lot of uh, other things are doing better in comparison 
to or better than they were in comparison to dairy. You know, for a long time there, dairy was the only game in town, kind of in terms of yeah. uh, the, the um, returns were outstripping others. We're not that gap's changed. But why, yeah. when you see those things supporting the land prices there in the Waikato, why do we not see? Why is it not fair to suggest those kinds of things could happen in other areas such as? Um, Taranaki or Canterbury? Yeah, and, and that's a good point and a good question. I guess, so in terms of the Waikato, there are so many alternatives that I have, I have, you're right, the nuance here is that it's a positive for dairy land values and that will help to support prices and maybe even create, perhaps create a premium in those locations where you've got plenty of option. And, and even in if we refer to the Southland section, I've referred to it almost in a negative sense around it's that alternative land use creating a floor. And I guess I've used that because Southland only, at this point in time, there really is only sheep and beef and or dairy support to provide that alternative. Mm. Um, and as we've seen just recently with coronavirus prices have been very volatile. I mean, everything is very volatile at this point in time. Um, the way that the second beef prices have gone since writing this report, you're right, I could have been a little bit more positive around that and suggested, um, yeah, suggested that it could have been more of a positive aspect rather than a negative. But the, the factor is still the same, is that it does depend really on that whole supply-demand scenario. With the Taranaki region, I chose to really focus there instead around that the impact that ownership has at that family level in the Taranaki region. So what's generally tended to move land values comes back to, and historically, comes back to the fact that the land is closely held and it tends to be largely family-driven um, or large iwi-driven or... Um, uh, as opposed to you know other alternative land uses being in there, and so because of that, the milk price then becomes the major driver for what we may see eventuate over the next five years, more so than whether or not we're planting horticulture. Right. So because the volatility more, in the milk price. Mm. Exactly. It's it's more important at this point in time in terms of setting the next five year direction, the milk price volatility and perhaps land use alternatives, as I see it, um, in terms of creating that, the biggest impact on price direction over the next five years. Mm -hmm. And I see you also note, as well as being the highest price, it's also uh, got some pretty high debt levels in that region. Yeah, it does. And um, But again, it's only as good as what the data Describes and this is based on dairy-based data, which is a, a survey-based data set from Dairy and Z. So um, that will depend basically on their survey numbers. But based on that data, it does seem as though Taranaki region has some of the highest debt per kilogram across the whole nation. So therefore, you've got milk price complexity as well as obviously the credit risk side of things to factor in as well mm. going forward. Okay, so what kind of feedback have you had from the report? Obviously there was a bit of a 
it did prompt quite a bit of discussion then when it first came out. People were a bit, uh, it was fairly um, glass half empty <laughs> kind of report. What, what kind of um, feedback have you had? Yeah, um, glass half empty or would we say realistic or reflecting what others are already talking about and pulling it all together in one document piece? Um, I think it depends on who you're talking to, really. I mean, I I think this is a really important report for farmers. Um, whether or not they like it is irrelevant. How they're going to manage some of these challenges over the next five years based on our assumptions and the direction we think they're going to move is the most vital part of this. And so some farmers, sure, they can, you know, if they want to, they can put their head in the sand, so to speak, or they can choose to ignore some of the stuff that I'm talking about if it doesn't meet with their agenda, and that's fine. That's totally fine. Everyone's got their own prerogative, and they can take this information as they choose to. But for some farmers who may want to plan in the next five years, I think this is a really important piece to do that. Um, And saying that, yeah, so the the feedback that I've had is um, a mix of positive and negative, but certainly the, <laughs> the negative feedback has been a little bit more louder than the positive just at this point in time because there are some challenges out there. You know, there is um, an issue around confidence and um, a lot of, you know, uncertainty challenges around, you know, a lot of the regulation stuff as we talked about. So, yeah, I fully appreciate that this isn't, this isn't a good news story necessarily, but for some farmers, there are going to, there's going to be a lot of opportunity. And also, if we see lower land values, the next generation coming through have more of an opportunity to get into the industry. And isn't that great from a longevity perspective? Um, you know, if we think about share milkers or different forms of ownership going forward, I think it's an exciting time for New Zealand agriculture. But I do appreciate completely that some farmers will be negatively impacted by this and um, certainly the balance sheets too. Mm, yeah. Um, farming isn't a short-term game. You know, you're looking at a five-year um, interval here. There is, there's a lot longer um, horizon for most farmers and things are cyclical. So I guess it's how you manage to make yourself more resilient, things yeah. that you can actually control. Uh, and, it, and as you say, putting your head up and, and taking notice of the factors and getting out there and, and, and managing what you can control. Yeah, and I think, so the biggest two takeaways that I really want to drive home for farmers or for listeners is just around the changes that are coming and how, so to your point around um, managing the manageable or creating resilience, is the first piece is around regulatory complexity. So there will be a focus going forward around consistent profitability, I think, year in, year out. Um, And there will be more of an onus on farmers to really understand the financials for their business. And I'm sure a lot of them already really do, but there will be a higher expectation going forward and to also prove some of those, um, consistently prove positive cash flow positions. And so that's the first thing that I just really want to flag. And the second thing is around the due diligence side of things for those that are looking to buy land. 
it will be a longer process and I think it will be more expensive, the whole due diligence process when it comes to purchasing dairy land over the next five years because of the regulatory environment and because farmers will really need to understand the catchment, the the um, the regulations specific to that farm um, going forward. And so it will it may actually slow down the land buying process. So, you know, two thousand so for example, two thousand and eight through till say two thousand and fourteen what anecdotally I was hearing was that, you know, land could be bought and sold fairly quickly. But I think going forward, with that onus on due diligence, that will slow down that land buying process and it will remove some of the drivers of perhaps that market tension that's helped to inflate prices. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of really um, key takeaways, I think, from a practical level that farmers can start to think about. Great. Hey, look, thanks, Emma, and thanks so much for your time to kind of uh, get more into this report, help explain some of the things behind it for us. Um, That's wonderful. Thanks for your time. No worries. Thanks, Anne. If you want to learn more, go to our website, nzfarmlife.co.nz and subscribe to our excellent monthly magazines. 